If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. On the 4th of July, 1776, 56 delegates to the Second Continental Congress agreed to put their names to a world-changing document. It had the heading, The Unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America, and its signatories in August 1776 included members of the Sons of Liberty, Samuel and John Adams, and John Hancock. The document laid out the colony's intended separation from Britain, And while the 4th of July is now a holiday commemorating the declaration, as we've heard in previous episodes, the colonial grievances it listed and the rights that it asserted had long, complicated roots. Independence did not arrive overnight in the summer of 1776. I'm Eleanor Evans, and welcome to the final episode in our series, Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution. Last episode, we heard how Britain's reaction to the Boston protest further united the 13 American colonies, led to the First Continental Congress and sparked more acts of protest and civil disobedience. We tracked the escalation of tensions from the events of December 1773 to the first shots of Revolutionary War in April 1775. But the start of the war can't be seen as a simple binary fight between Americans and the British. It was a time when many colonists' identities were changing or being forged anew. Here's professor and author Sarah Churchwell. Although it's a big and amorphous topic because, as with any question of identity, it's both obviously subjective, but it's also very fluid. So what you have at that time is people who most of them identify politically as British, legally as British citizens, certainly, but they did increasingly see themselves as Americans and would have described themselves as Americans. They would describe Britain as the mother country, but themselves as Americans. And so they had this kind of hybrid identity that's very easy to imagine ourselves into today. Lots of people have that sense of kind of dual citizenship or which you belong to different groups at the same time. So they were both British and American and those were not in conflict. As they came into conflict, then you had to choose a side. So increasingly people began to say that they were American and not British. And you get people like for example, John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, the framers, the leaders who drove this political movement, who had a real antagonism to the British and did not see themselves as British. But many, many of their fellow citizens did. And in fact, many of their relatives did, would have said, no, we're British. What are you talking about? So you actually see the fluidity of what would become the Civil War playing out in the volatility of those identity categories, precisely because they're not fixed, is 
both why it's hard to, to pin down, but why things had to come to a head because legally, politically, and economically, lines were being drawn. For the most part, people had to choose a side. And so they chose sides around what their greater sense of allegiance was. What was their sense of where their livelihood remained? Where were their families? Did they have more family back in Britain with whom they were in close contact? Or did they have all of their family there? No kind of personal sense of a relationship to Britain. But it's important to note that in the run-up to the revolution in 75 and 76, upwards of 100,000 people fled the American colonies and relocated mostly either to Canada or back in Britain. And that may not sound like a lot of people today, but it's the equivalent of about 10 million people today. It's a massive exodus of people who just said, I'm out, and either were reabsorbed as British citizens or, as I say, became Canadians. The popular American history doesn't tell that story. Professional American historians, of course, tell that story. But it's not a gratifying story about the fact that huge swathes of Americans fled um, into exile before this, but because they did not identify as Americans in the way that American identity was being created. It was being constructed in front of them in relationship to these ideas of independence. And for those who were monarchists, they left. I asked Professor of History Sarah Purcell what importance she places on the Boston Tea Party's role amid these changing senses of identity. I think it's a turning point. It's a turning point toward American identity. It's not as though on the morning of December 17th, 1773, everyone woke up in the American colonies and thought, oh, now today we're American instead of British. But what they did see in the months unfolding afterwards was, well, okay, if the parliament is going to send the British army to come after us, and if we're going to have to fight a war against them, and if we're going to put together a Congress and we're going to have a sort of common cause, and if many of our communities are going to be torn apart in many parts of the colonies and parts of the then United States, because we have divided loyalties, we have loyalists and patriots or Whigs, I think it is is a turning point where American identity becomes possible, let's put it that way. Some people develop it more quickly thereafter than others. Events always accelerate, so once the Revolutionary War starts, that's certainly the another large turning point. And then you can get to the Declaration of Independence, and then even after that, there are still divided loyalties. But I guess you could say you could not have had American identity develop at all in the way that it did without the Boston Tea Party and without the reaction of the course of acts, because it really does set up an us versus them on the parliament side and us versus them on the colonist side. And as I said, it created what they called the common cause between Massachusetts protesters and colonists and a lot of people who were questioning British authority in the other colonies. Now, that's not to say it's immediate, because even after the Tea Party, for another two and a half years, a lot of people, even people who ended up being part of the U.S. government, didn't necessarily see independence as the way to go, but they did start to think of themselves as Americans. And so it's a kind of potent cocktail of American identity and then actions that leads to, lead toward actual independence and the nation of the United States. So that continues to accelerate. It's a process that's not entirely done, even by the end of the American Revolution, because as I said, there are divided loyalties everywhere that you look. But the Boston Tea Party is a real turning point that makes the creation of both American national identity and the United States of America institutionally not only possible, but much more probable. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. We heard a little last episode about when the Boston Tea Party started to take on significance in the broader timeline of the fight for independence. I asked Sarah to tell us a little more about its changing role in America's founding story. The destruction of the tea is definitely lauded and remembered and has a significance both in people's own memories and also in the public memory, though it is somewhat overshadowed for a while by the early events of the Revolutionary War. So, you know, once the Revolutionary War gets going, I will say that the events of Lexington and Concord or Bunker Hill or other other early battles kind of take up a large part of the American imagination, the story that they tell themselves about how the Revolutionary War kind of creates the United States of America. But the Tea Party is always in there. Interestingly, it doesn't actually get called the Tea Party until the 1830s. And that's interesting in a number of ways, because you can see that, for one thing, there's still a a memory of the event, and the event is still seen as quite important. And it gets this pseudo-comical name of the Tea Party, right? It's, It's a play on words. And it gets that in the 1830s, Alfred Young, who was a wonderful, wonderful scholar of revolutionary history, and he did a lot of work on a man named George Robert Twelves Hughes. It's one of the great names of the colonial world who was a shoemaker, who was a very poor shoemaker, and he had taken part in the destruction of the tea. And he himself also then fought in the Revolutionary War and also served on a privateer, privately sanctioned ship in the Revolution. And he had in his community outside of Boston, in community, kept the memory alive. It was very important to him. He would tell the story, you know, each year in public. Um, he would appear in his Revolutionary War uniform. And 
Alfred Young did a lot of work on this man, George Robert Twelves Hughes, he lived to be over 100 years old, and that helped to perpetuate the memory of the Tea Party because he told the story a lot. And he was interviewed by historians in the 1830s, in part because there was a renewal of interest in kind of working men in the 1830s and sort of working class politics of the 1830s. And they were interested in looking back to the revolutionary roots of that. And so they interviewed this shoemaker who was still in the community. And it's thought that it's then, around 1835, those interviews are published under the name Tea Party. And that's when that term Tea Party first gets used. So they would not have called it the Tea Party in the 1780s or 90s, but they certainly remembered the events as being important and leading into the revolution. I also put the question of the Tea Party significance to historian and author Benjamin Karp. I mean, early histories of the Revolutionary War certainly mention the Boston Tea Party as an important event. And you can see some really fascinating cartoons that were published in Europe that kind of have a teapot at the center, you know, and there were a lot of people who really couldn't believe it. Like, this whole thing is all about tea. So some people really made it central to their understanding of what was going on. But other people realized that there was, you know, a much wider list of American grievances. I mean, the Americans don't explicitly mention tea in the Declaration of Independence, but they still have 20-something other grievances about all the reasons why, you know, they could no longer obey King George III. On King George III, then, he's often characterised as a bit of a, a tyrant in this story. How true is this, do you think, in your opinion? I think Americans actually come to that idea quite late. For most of the pre-revolutionary period, the Americans' grievances with Parliament or certain of the king's ministers who they think, you know, have been overly influential or who have become corrupt. And they blame, you know, the various placemen or customs officials or, you know, and other kinds of officials that uh, have been sent to America. They do not blame the king himself as late as 1774. But there's a transition that happens between 1774 and 1776 where the king does become their focus. I mean, one of the things that the king does, I believe, in November of 1775 is he puts the colonies out from under his protection. So at that point, yes, okay, now their grievance is with King George, not just Parliament. It is clear that it was not just the king getting bad advice and Parliament being corrupt, but that the king actually is standing behind what the empire has been trying to do to its colonies. And so therefore, the king becomes the source of protest as well. And, and, and in early 1776, you have Thomas Paine writing, hey, we don't really need monarchs. Maybe we should get rid of the whole idea of monarchs. And so, yeah, when the Americans establish the United States, they say, OK, we're not going to have titles of nobility. We're going to have a republic instead. Returning to our central event, I asked Benjamin how else he might characterize the Boston Tea Party in the broader story of America and revolution. Benjamin Woods Labory characterizes the Boston Tea Party as a key catalyst of the American Revolution. And I think that's right, right? I mean, if it weren't for the Boston Tea Party, you wouldn't have had the Coercive Acts. If it weren't for the Coercive Acts, you would not have had the First Continental Congress and some of the other important protests. And if it hadn't been for that, you would not have gotten to the bloodshed that then leads to war and to American independence. So it is something that gets the ball rolling. I think it's a different answer to kind of say, why is the Boston Tea Party important to us now? Because over time, the Boston Tea Party has acquired new meanings, right? It becomes symbolic of American origins, and it also becomes symbolic of a certain tactic of civil disobedience, that if your rights are being violated, the idea that it might sometimes be okay to break the law and destroy property in defiance of what government is doing or in defense of some kind of higher principle. 
well. And you'll see groups with all sorts of different kinds of politics over the years in American history and even in world history looking to the Boston Tea Party as an example of that kind of civil disobedience. And because the Boston Tea Party is so easy to visibly imagine, it's not like signing a document or, you know, wrangling with some sort of obscure legal question. Instead, it's something that you can very easily visualize. A bunch of guys in Indian disguises boarding a ship and destroying property. I mean, it's the kind of thing that like appeals even to like a kid's brain. And there were teenage boys, in fact, involved in the destruction of the tea. So there's there's something that really kind of speaks to us as an act of protest that has enabled the Boston Tea Party to acquire these very different meanings over the years and to become only more powerful as a symbolic American memory. It's remembered as a nonviolent protest. But as we've learned over the last four episodes, the wider story of the Boston Tea Party is far from peaceful. One of the things to remember about the Boston Tea Party is that even though no one was killed and there were a couple of scuffles, right, that defined the Boston Tea Party, right, even though the Boston Tea Party itself was nonviolence, it comes at the end of weeks of violence and intimidation that had been perpetrated against the consignees, that had been threatened against the ship owners. Everyone knew that the Boston crowd was ready to beat someone up if the circumstances were right, that violence had broken out in Boston before. That threat of violence is hanging over the entire episode. And so even though, again, the Boston Tea Party itself was quite orderly and no one was very, very seriously hurt except for the one man that they caught disobeying them, it still represents the kind of edge of violence that was present during a lot of these political protests in Boston. Why is this violence so often forgotten in the story? Here's Sarah Churchwell's take. I think there are two reasons why violence got kind of written out of the story of the Boston Tea Party. First, it's a very gratifying story to say, not just gratifying, it maintains the colony's complete innocence. So this was a nonviolent protest. All of the shots were fired by the Crown. The Boston people are completely innocent in all of this. And they were pushed to their ultimate point. And when they had no other recourse, they didn't harm a single human, but they boarded these ships and they only destroyed tea and they destroyed the property. So that's a nice story for people to tell themselves about their ancestors and about the origins of American independence. It is not true. No independence was ever gained without violence on both sides and violence that could be objected to on both sides. And certainly even the people supporting the Sons of Liberty and on the side of the rebels in the colonies, many of them deplored the violence that was being committed in their name. There were mobs. A lot of it was uncontrolled. It was not all planned and systematic the way that the Boston Tea Party was. So that's one reason. The other reason, though, was because the violence that led up to the Boston Tea Party wasn't discreet the way that the Boston Massacre was. It wasn't a single event and it wasn't a single big event. It was just inflamed tensions. It was mob actions. It was threats. It was people throwing stones. It was, you know, breaking into people's homes and they broke into the Harvard Library and they slashed portraits. So there were various acts of increasing violence, destruction of property, but also that violence would and did occasionally break out in to uh, serious harm for people involved in it. But so it simplified the story. You could say the Boston Massacre is the Redcoats firing on us and the Boston Tea Party is Americans in a nonviolent way going and, and destroying the tea. And that's a nice, simple story, not just for adult Americans to tell themselves, but to teach your children 
So that gets passed down and is now lore in America. Every school children always learn this to the point where we have school plays, or at least we used to, where there would be pageants where children would dress up as the colonists who boarded the boats and destroyed the tea. And of course, we don't have pageants about the Boston Massacre. You don't have children dress up and, you know, pretend, even in America, pretend to shoot each other. At the moment, we still don't glorify violence that way. So the fact that it was nonviolence made it an easy story to tell in lots of ways. 250 years on, it's clear that the story of the Boston Tea Party is still being unpicked and restitched by each generation. I asked our experts to give me a sense of how it's invoked today and the legacy of the event in both contemporary America and its place in global history. I mean, it's been used as tax protest. It's been used in favor of civil rights. It's been used by white supremacist groups. It's been used by temperance movements. It's been used on behalf of women's rights. It's, you know, Gandhi mentions it in his time in South Africa. Sun Yat-sen mentions it as a matter of Chinese nationalism. Lots of people point to this form of American protest and say, well, you know, shouldn't that protest tradition continue? Shouldn't Americans agree with this? During the Black Lives Matter protests, right, when people criticize the fact that some property was damaged. It's like, well, isn't property damage as part of American protest on behalf of civil rights a proud American tradition? But it raises these disagreements again and again of order and obedience on the one hand and then disorder in defense of certain rights on the other. And I think that Americans ought to have mixed feelings about the Boston Tea Party, actually. But on the other hand, I also feel very strongly that the Boston Tea Party and some of the other events of the revolution that have acquired this patriotic sheen, that they shouldn't only belong to one subset of, of the American people, that all Americans, whether left, right, or center, you know, ought to be able to look to the Boston Tea Party for inspiration and ought to be able to own it as part of uh, America's national history, and also perhaps to even own it as a kind of transnational event, right? They should understand it. They should understand that it was maybe more violent than we might appreciate. They should understand who the Bostonians were, what the choices were that they faced, what the consequences of it were, right? They should understand that, like, a a violent act of mayhem is not always going to be universally popular and that that's not always the right step to take when you don't like the laws that you say are oppressing you. But again, let's have that debate. Let's be serious about it. Let's have a full knowledge of what the Boston Tea Party is so that that memory and that history can belong to all of us. People do think it was this kind of great symbol of nonviolent political protest, nonviolent resistance to authoritarianism, to tyranny, as they would have said. And that is a tradition that has been carried on and invoked many, many times in the aftermath. It was invoked by Martin Luther King in the civil rights struggle in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He talked about it as nonviolent protest. There were many of the activists who were fighting for both abolition and for women's rights in the 19th century invoked the Boston Tea Party. People who were fighting for women's suffrage in 1873 had a centennial celebration saying this is what civil disobedience looks like. And so they invoked the Boston Tea Party. And they did so specifically because the fight for women's rights was also about taxation without representation because women were paying taxes, but they did not have political representation. So they invoked exactly the same language. And of course, it's also been used internationally. It has become a global symbol of protest. You know, we have seen it picked up the language of it used, as I say, in, in protests around the world. But there are also less peaceful and less gratifying examples 
of the ways in which this story has been used. The most important in American politics is that it gave rise to the so-called Tea Party movement of 2011 during the Obama administration when a group of libertarian, right-wing, conservative, anti-liberal, certainly anti-Obama, and these people came together and created a coalition, uh, of course, they called the Tea Party. And that successful midterm movement around the 21st century Tea Party gave us Sarah Palin, was probably its greatest political legacy. But there are members of that Tea Party movement who are still in politics today, unlike Sarah Palin. So, for example, Tim Scott from North Carolina, who's still in office, um, he was first voted in on a Tea Party platform. Nikki Haley, who is uh, former governor of South Carolina, is running for the Republican nomination as we speak. She was originally a Tea Party candidate. So their legacy is by no means erased. They are alive and kicking in American politics. It was an anti-federal small government anti-taxation movement that said that they didn't want big federal taxes. What they wanted was local taxes. And the kind of benign expression of this was people just arguing for decentralized local control over their taxes, their schools, the way that tax money would be spent. But the more radical version of it was libertarian. The more radical version said wanted to abolish taxes altogether or wanted to remake the economy or wanted to get rid of the federal government or completely destroy it or break it down from within. And the so-called Freedom Caucus, who is uh, in power in the House right now, are certainly the heirs of that political project. And, And that story is not over. And they are continuing to invoke the Tea Party. And given that there are increasing calls for violence around a lot of these political divides today, and given that there was violence around the Boston Tea Party and around in the run-up to the revolution as well as in the revolution itself, it's important to to note that invoking the Tea Party is not necessarily only a nonviolent kind of invocation. And also they are increasingly around the political divides today, calling explicitly again for revolution and, and claiming the kind of mantle of revolutionary America. It's worth noting as an aside, but a really important one, that another group that did that were the Confederates when they seceded from the Union. They said they were a revolutionary generation and that they were inheriting the right to rebel within their right to secede. So, you know, it's all well and good to talk about the Boston rebels. But if you associate yourself with that insurrectionary tradition, you need to be aware of associating yourself with the insurrectionary tradition that led to the Civil War, unless you're on the side of the Confederates. Well, I think the notion of civil disobedience and or people kind of standing for their beliefs in a collective action sort of way, I mean, that's definitely part of both the national identity of the United States and and also a very particular legacy for political movements, for political organizing in the United States. And whether you look at the abolitionists in the 19th century, some of whom invoked the Tea Party from time to time, whether you look at the civil Civil rights movement using civil disobedience or collective protest, or whether you look at 21st century political movements like the so-called Tea Party, right, using the term the Tea Party to explicitly link itself to the Republican Party movement. And that was, I think, in part made more potent by it being a protest against taxes, a protest against tax increases, you know, in the Obama era, but that it has this kind of populist collective appeal and that it is something, it, it speaks to not populism, but kind of popular collective protests against 
too much authority in American life. And that could be whether that's oppressing black people in the civil rights movement or black people in the institution of slavery, or whether it's oppressing Republican Party members who want lower taxes and a smaller federal government. So it's a very malleable, and you can see those are kind of very, very different political movements. But the symbol of the Tea Party is available for anyone really in American life who is organizing a political movement of protest and wants to show that there is kind of strong community unanimity as a symbol and where they think symbolism is really important in that kind of protest. And if they want to emphasize that their foes, be it too much federal government or the institution of slavery, that their foes are tyrannical, so-called, right? That they are, from the colonists' perspective, the kind of painting of the British Empire as tyrannical. And so it, it has a lot of power to emphasize, on the one hand, collective organizing and power to the people, and on the other hand, the kind of overweening tyranny power of your foe. There is no doubt, then, that the events of the Boston Tea Party continue to resonate and inspire two and a half centuries since the destruction of 46 tonnes of tea. Over the last five episodes, we've heard about the rising taxes and the radicalising of colonists, some who turned to violence. We were taken on board three East India Company ships and heard how the protesters took meticulous care when destroying the tea. Finally, we've considered the protests' far-reaching and complex legacy. To close our series, I asked Sarah Purcell for a final thought on why she believes people should care about the Boston Tea Party and what they should understand about the event in the 21st century. I think it's really important to understand that it was real action and there was real peril and the stakes were incredibly high. And I think one reason that it has lived in memory and the reason it has such incredible political consequences is that it really is an identifiable one day in history where people took a series of actions that were not necessarily sanctioned by law to oppose something that they believed was unjust, whether that is correct or not. And so it's one of those days where you can kind of point to a turning point towards the American Revolution, where colonial resistance turned into the American Revolution. And that particular day, December 16th of 1773, is one of the days where that really, really happened. And it's not very often that we can point to a single day in history where a single series of events really show us a turning point that dramatic. In part, it's because of the way Parliament reacted with the crackdown against the city of Boston. But if that tea hadn't been destroyed, that wouldn't have happened. And so I would just say that that it's a turning point in history that is legible to us 250 years later, where we can see a particular day and decisions that people made on both sides of an issue changing the course of world history on that day. That's why it's important to hone in and look at the events of that day, because they really were tremendously significant and they concentrate a lot of world historical events into one day's worth of action. Thank you to my experts for sharing their knowledge and research in this series. Benjamin Karp is Professor of History at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Centre, and the author of books including Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Sarah Churchwell is Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and Professor of American Literature at the University of London. Sarah Purcell is Professor of History at Grinnell College, Iowa, and the author of books that include Sealed with Blood, 
War Sacrifice and Memory in Revolutionary America. This episode was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Sam Leal Green. Additional fact checks were by Gordon O'Sullivan. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this series, you can reach us on our History Extra social channels or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.